Why do you come for worship? Why are you here? What's the purpose of us coming together each week in one place to sing and to pray and to interact with God's Word? What's the point? What's the purpose? Now, when we ask that question, I suspect that uh, some of the answers might be, well, what difference does it make why I'm here? I'm here. I come. I mean, I come because you're supposed to come. But it does make a difference. In fact, it makes a world of difference because on the one hand, worship seems to be the most common activity that takes place in heaven. John's revelation tells us at least 12 times that people in heaven bow down and worship God. And what we do here in worship is a preparation for what we will do throughout all eternity. Worship also makes a difference because Jesus tells the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4 that a time is coming, and in fact has now come, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. These are the kinds of worshipers the Father seeks. There are certain kinds of worshipers that are doing what God wants them to do, which implies there are worshipers who are not. And that then causes us to ask, so what's the difference? What does it look like to be one of the worshipers that God seeks? What makes us the kind of worshipers that please the Father? What kind of worship prepares us for heaven? It's an important question. It's a vital question. It's a question that the people of God have been pondering through the centuries, and God has called them to ponder, including the post-exilic Jews who are attempting to reestablish Jerusalem, reestablish the temple and the worship there. As they, be, as they continue that process and as they work through all of that, the chronicler puts together this account and, and, and gives it to them. And one of the elements of this account, a lot of this account, is about worship. And he talks to them, as we looked at last week, about the ark coming back to Jerusalem and David bringing it back. And now today, we have this psalm of David that they sing as the ark comes back and as they get everything ready and begin to worship in the temple of Jerusalem, in the tabernacle of Jerusalem. And I think there is something in the psalm and in this account that is essential for us to hear and understand about what it means to be the kind of worshipers that the Father seeks, just as it was for these people who lived four or five hundred years before Christ. I don't think it's a surprise to any of us that genuine worship is focused completely and fully on God. The psalm is is really about that. And David makes that abundantly clear. And he breaks it down into about three different ways of focusing on God. And he begins in verses 8 to 22 by talking about the ways in which we remember what God has done. 
And he, he spends a great deal of time talking about God's acts in history. And he reminds them of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and about being a, a people who wander around, and God's promise to settle them in the land. And then God does that, and God has covenant with them. And he makes this covenant, and he is faithful to that covenant. And it's, they're reminded over and over again of what God has done. And this long history, recounting this long history of God's faithfulness, is intended to to help them trust God's faithfulness in the present because they've seen God be faithful in the past. And that's one of the reasons why worship is so important for us and why we want to focus on God and we want to recount the things God has done so that we will be inspired to trust God in the present as we see that God is trustworthy in the past. It's one of the reasons we, we talk about the church calendar. If you're like me, you may, you may we were raised in a, in a church that that didn't use the church calendar. You may have even thought it uh, wasn't uh, very spiritual to talk about the church calendar. But it seems to me that it's one of the important ways in which the church understands and stays focused on what God has done. It's all focused on Christ. Advent, beginning, it begins with Advent and the preparation for Christ coming into the world as an infant. And then we celebrate Christmas, which focuses on Christ instead of all the other things that Christmas grabs our attention with. And we move to Epiphany, where God reveals that, that, that Jesus comes not just for the Jews, but for the Gentiles too. And then we move into Lent, the time to focus on the cross and the passion of Christ and, and the sacrifice that, that Christ has made for our salvation, which leads us into the celebration of Easter, 50 days to celebrate the risen Christ. And that takes us to Pentecost, the longest of the seasons. That's given to us to remember the coming of the Holy Spirit and the birth of the church and the growth in Christ that's required and expected of every believer. All of it is about Jesus. All of it is to keep our attention focused on the acts of God in Christ. That's why it can be so important for us. And the thing is, when we think about God's greatness and we think about all the things that God has done, it ought to cause us to then remember not only how great God is, but how small we are. And so in the verses 23 to 33, David acknowledges that we are lost without God. The psalm reminds us that we're citizens of God's kingdom only because God has chosen to make us citizens. Only because God has responded positively to us. Because God has chosen to redeem us and to save us and to rescue us. It's not because we are so great. In fact, we are unworthy, undeserving. It is God's grace and goodness that redeems us. In worship, we're reminded of that truth. Because we have a tendency to a spirit of entitlement. Well, of course God's going to do that for me, for us. We need to remember, and worship helps us to remember, that we don't deserve anything God has given us. And when you put those together, remembering who God is and what he's done, and remembering who we are and what we can't do, the most natural response to that is gratitude. 
in the last few verses of this psalm, acknowledge that God has come to us and we owe everything to him. We owe our lives to him because he created us. We owe our health because he sustains us. We owe him our family and our income because he has provided for us. And we owe him our spiritual lives because he redeemed us. But followers of God understand that worship is not only about what we do when we're together. It's not only about these specific times when we gather in specific places to focus on God. To set aside time to sing and to pray and to reflect on God's word. Worship doesn't end when we walk out the door. There's something more. We tend to believe that worship is really about what we do here. But actually, the validity and the power of what we do here is really proven by what we do when we leave here. How we act toward others when we leave worship has been God's concern through the centuries. The prophets speak of it often. For example, Isaiah says, For day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways. They seem eager for God to come near them. Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please. You exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. The Pharisees go through all the right rituals. They're always going to to worship in the Sabbath, but they treat people terribly. And Jesus calls them a brood of vipers and whitewashed tombs. Something isn't right with their worship. And John writes in the passage we read a few moments ago that everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. And whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. And if we say we love God yet we hate other people, we are liars. If we don't don't love a fellow believer who we see, we cannot love God whom whom we cannot see. Those who love God love each other. And it fascinates me when I read this this passage here, chapter 16. It fascinates me how it ends. You have all of this amazing time of worship. And the last sentence, verse 43, says, Then all the people left, each for his own home, and David returned home to bless his family. Now, I would have expected it to say, David returned home to rule Israel. Or David returned home to lead his people to know more about God. Or David returned home to plan his next battle campaign. But the writer says David went home to bless his family. And the word bless is, you know, it's, it means to speak positively. It's the benediction. It's the words of blessing that God pronounces on his people. That Moses and Aaron pronounce on the people. It's, the, it's an acts of goodness and kindness. It's, it's encouraging people. It's lifting people up. It's, it's how God treats us. And it seems to me that what this is saying to us is that genuine worship, while focused on God while we're here, naturally leads us to treat people the way God treats us. That when we've been in worship... And if we want to know, have we really, truly focused on God, one of the tests of that is how do we treat people who are closest to us when we leave worship? I think that's a far more important and significant sign 
than many of the things we use to decide whether worship is good or not. If we're self-focused when we are here with God, we're going to be self-focused with people who are closest to us. And if we're self-focused when we're with people who are closest to us, there's a good chance we really have been self-focused when we're here worshiping together. I'm convinced the greatest threat to the gospel is not Islam or Hollywood or our concern about the, the, uh, the moral bankruptcy of our culture, as bad as those things can be. The greatest threat to the gospel is people claiming to be citizens of the king and coming to worship and then leaving and acting as though God means nothing to them. Acting as though being in worship had no bearing on their life. Because people are going to connect. We go to worship, here's how we live. And they're going to make judgments about the validity of worship and far more seriously, God. By how people who come to worship live. And I find it fascinating that David has this wonderful time of worship and his natural response is to go home and bless his family. It isn't always easy to do that. I don't think it's easy for David. You remember, 1 Chronicles 15 ends with these words, As the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, and the wife of David, watched from a window, and when she saw King David dancing and celebrating, she despised him in her heart. It doesn't tell us exactly what happens when David gets home that day, but when he comes to the door, Honey, I'm home, I don't think it's hugs and kisses. And yet David goes home and blesses his family. That's just the point. Worship should give us the strength to be loving and kind, even when those closest to us aren't all that positive about us being in worship. That's the real test. Jesus says, if you love those who love you, if you're you're kind and good to people who are kind and good to you, so what? What? Everybody does that. The real test is, how do you treat people who aren't kind to you? How do you treat people who don't love you? We're going to be embarking on another prayer vigil here in a few weeks. And I know for many of you who were part of this last fall and last spring, it was a powerful moment, powerful time. But our goal is not that we come and spend an hour in prayer or that we as a church spend three weeks in 24-hour-a-day prayer and then act like nothing happened. That we spend the time in prayer and then walk away no different than when we came. The goal is to spend that time in prayer so that God can work in us and transform us and so that when we walk out of times of prayer, we're a little more like Christ than when we went in. Then we come out of that time of prayer we treat those closest to us with a little more kindness and gentleness and patience and blessing. Earlier this year, CNN published a story about teens who are becoming fake Christians. And the article was based on Ken DeCreasy Dean's book, Almost Christian, that says that so many teenagers who are growing up in the church are, are practicing a watered-down Christianity. And they're just going through the motions of faith. And there are a lot of factors involved in that. But one of the significant factors was, was the influence of people who were a part of the church. Who made great statements of faith and who were very active in church. 
But outside the walls of the church didn't seem to be any different from anybody else. And it's causing these teenagers to think, then why mess with it? What difference does it make? As I was thinking about how to, how to image this idea, someone gave the idea of, of a prism. Now, I have to admit to you, I'm not a physicist and I'm not the son of a physicist. Uh, so I'm, I'm sort of speaking out of my league here, but I can, I can Google like most people can to find out about things. And, you know, a, a prism is, you know, a, a piece, something clear, often glass or clear, that, that when waves of light hit it, it bends the rays, and it often causes the, uh, the clear glass to take on colors, much like a rainbow would. And, and there's something in that image about the light of Christ shining in us in worship, that when we go out, people see vivid, bright Beautiful colors. And so as we've been talking about this chair representing a throne and the various things that we've talked about of the tree representing the genealogies and how we're connected to one another through the centuries and universally and, and that those who are in the kingdom whose hearts are turned fully to God and, and this cape represents the fact that we, God makes us heroes to do all kinds of things for him. And then last week as we talked more about worship again, how it is this combination of the awe of God and yet celebration. And now today this sort of necklace of pieces of glass that represent the desire that God has for his people who come to worship to refract the light of Christ with beautiful, vibrant, vivid colors and particularly with those who are closest to us. I want you to think for a moment about the people, the people who are close to you. It might be a family member, it might be a roommate, coworker, neighbor, someone or a few people who are who are close to you. And think about what could you do that would make them feel blessed. What could you do that would make them feel like they feel encouraged to be loved, maybe forgiven. Now, as you think about coming to worship, something from being here in worship today, how can that help you go and be what you've just envisioned with those people? To go out of worship, to go home, to go to the place where you work, to to go to your room, to go to your apartment, to go to your dorm floor, to go to the cafeteria and bless the people who are closest to you. Imagine what this church would look like if, if that became the most common response to worship. Imagine what this town and this community and the surrounding communities would look like if, if that became the norm for our worship. That we became prisms of God's grace and mercy and love because we come and we're so focused on him that as his light shines on us and we go out, we reflect beauty and blessing and the grace of God. 
I know that's what God wants for us. Are we willing to let him do it? Holy Father, we thank you for your great blessings in our lives. We thank you for all the ways in which you have revealed yourself to us throughout time and history, space. We thank you for all the promises you've made to us. Lord, as we come to this table, we recognize that this is a central part of our worship. That we come and we remember what you've done for us in Christ Jesus. His death and resurrection. We remember, Father, that night when Jesus, meeting with his his disciples, took bread. And he gave thanks to you and he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples saying, take, eat, for this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. We remember that on that same night he took the cup. And again, he gave thanks to you and he gave it to his disciples. He said, drink from this, all of you. For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for your sins and the sins of all people. Every time you do this, do it in remembrance of me. Father, we pray that as we come and receive the bread and the cup, that your blessing will so rest upon these elements that as we receive them, we will be filled anew with your Holy Spirit. We will know in a deeper way your grace in our lives and that it will inspire us and impel us to be people who bless those who are closest to us. Let it be so, Father, through your mercy and your grace. Amen.